really wanted to be and, and do want to be, but uh, some things changed here that sped this this project up uh, almost immeasurably, and I need to be here Monday morning. Uh, and I left Friday. I'd have gotten in late Friday toward Sabbath and had to be there for about 24 hours and turn around and leave and come back. And uh, it's getting harder and harder on my old body uh, to make that quick a turnaround and close to 1,500 miles that quickly, plus no time really to spend there <clears throat> other than the Sabbath portion. So things worked out, and the thing is, I was going to be doing most of the plumbing, and I've never plumbed a house that was going to be covered with con concrete. I've always done them with crawl space so you can get at it, but everything has to be precise. And it worked out that a plumber uh, who thought he was six, seven weeks away uh, suddenly had time, and he said, I'll be there Monday morning. So I have to be here to oversee the whole thing. Matt's got a cold and sick and uh, had lost employees to help Amanda, and he's just absolutely tied up. So I have to oversee it. But fortunately, and I think God worked it out, Ivan was able to get a car that needs some body work that no one uh, in that family at this point needed or wanted and uh, was going to sell it to the salvage yard. And Ivan got it for that price, and it's in good shape other than some things on the body. So he was able to drive it home, and that was one of the things is I wanted to be able to get him home. And uh, since I couldn't, uh, it turned out that he could. <laughs> so everything worked out beautifully. God has a way of doing things like that. So anyway, I'm here uh, and not there, but uh, hopefully we'll be home next Sabbath. Now, one announcement. The fast of the fourth month is coming up this coming Tuesday starting Monday evening at sundown. So that's of the fourth month, uh, as described there in Zechariah 8. Uh, not just a Jewish thing, but something that God incorporated into the Bible itself. Briefly, Nebuchadnezzar was besieging Jerusalem, and the Jews had been able to hold out to a certain point, but... Uh, Jeremiah 52 says that they ran out of food, so the warriors and the king, Zedekiah, and everybody important uh, whom Nebuchadnezzar would have killed, fled the city and went out on the plain, but Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers caught up with them. Uh, they behead or they killed Zedekiah's sons before his very eyes. And then they put out Zedekiah's eyes. So essentially the last thing he saw was his sons being killed. But they didn't kill him. They took him to uh, Babylon and put him in jail. And he stayed in jail uh, until he died. Uh, that was a very, very cruel punishment for him to see his uh, Judah destroyed, to see his sons killed and then his eyes put out. So that, that 
vision, that eyesight uh, was cut off in such a way that he must have had the terrible, terrible nightmares and feelings and so on throughout the rest of his life, however long he lived. But war is not pretty. War is not beautiful. And we have, we are already in World War III now. It is uh, kind of being con confined to the Ukraine, essentially, uh, while the U.S. and NATO fight against Russia through the Ukraine. This is due to escalate, as we know, and this nation is going to be taken the same way uh, the nation of Judah and Jerusalem were taken. And there is a way of escape provided for a very few who will obey God and serve Him when this nation goes down. And it is getting closer and closer by the day as things go on and on uh, between the major powers of the earth. It's, it's truly laughable if it weren't so terrible the position we have put ourselves in. China is in league with Russia and wants to see us go down. They want to colonize this nation. And yet, most of the material that we use for war and to build our war machines depends on uh, rare earth minerals. And 90% of those come from China. They're mined there, they're processed there, and then they're shipped here for us to build our war machines. And if China decides to shut that off, we can't build war machines. Raytheon has said, they're one of the big producers, that it would take years and years in order to be able to replace those things from somewhere else. There are rare minerals in the U.S., but getting it turned around could not be done in time uh, for us to save ourselves from what's coming. So there are so many, many different ways that we've had it. And it's a matter of watching to see. Uh, I'm getting a little feedback on that now. I don't know why. Uh, I guess that was all of it, just briefly. Well, last week we talked... Uh, about the importance of the Sabbath. We went through quite a few scriptures to show how God sanctified it, that is, set it apart for holy use. He hallowed it, that is, he made it holy, and he is the only thing truly that is holy in the universe. So he put the Sabbath on a very, very high plane of importance. Uh, he made it a holy convocation, a time when we are commanded to assemble together. And he told us, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It is very, very important that the Sabbath is there, and then he makes it very, very important that we meet on the Sabbath. Uh, it's better for all together. But sometimes, at least modernly, we can meet uh, by uh, television or by uh, phone, audio, uh, 
if we can't be there in person. And I remember the days when I was young that we didn't have local congregations. The only thing we had was the half-hour radio program every day, including the Sabbath, and the correspondence course, and any who believed could get together, but there weren't very many to do that. In the area where I was growing up, only I had one uncle who was in the church, as we were, and the nearest people that we knew who were also in the church were about 130 miles away in Pecos. Well, though there were some in Lubbock as well, but uh, uh, as time went on, that was a little bit later, but you couldn't get together. And I've noticed through experience over the decades that when people are not able to get together on the Sabbath to see each other keeping it, to see the importance of it, if they're out on their own, they have great difficulty growing. They tend to take things easier. They tend to slack off. Uh, they tend to do things that they should probably be doing Sabbath. Uh, they're just kind of on their own. And that which is left alone doesn't do so well. If you plant a garden and just walk off and leave it and say, hope you do well, uh, you're not going to have much of a garden. And the same is true of the truth of God and the Sabbath. So uh, we saw last week how important it is through quite a few different scriptures. Uh, it was the day, the seventh day, that was set aside as a day of rest from labor. And there was a purpose in that, very obviously, for the future, for future generations, because he established it as a Sabbath forever. Now, that's pretty important in itself. It wasn't just a temporary thing, but it was forever. So it must have carried some meaning, if you will, for the future. Why would you have it and have it continuing unless it was of great importance to the future? In other words, is there some symbolism there that is so very important? What does it symbolize? What does it point to? What is there that we can see? What's the meaning, then, of the Sabbath? Let's uh, look at it today from not the importance of it, but the purpose of it. Now, when the manna came... What was God's lesson with manna? Well, his lesson uh, was, well, more than just one fold, but the lesson there was that God can give you bread from heaven that you can live on. Uh, so they could be sustained by it. Secondly, he used it to very powerfully teach them about the Sabbath that if they gathered twice as much on Friday, it would still be good. If they gathered twice as much on Tuesday, it would be spoiled by morning. So it was a daily thing that they needed from God. But he doubled up on Friday. 
that they would have <laughs> bread for the Sabbath, <clears throat> excuse me, and that they wouldn't double up and it wouldn't spoil. And it made the Sabbath then very, very important to them. Now understand, and we'll get into this a little more as we go through this sermon. Everything that God made there in Genesis from day one to day six is visible. He made the sun and the moon. He brought the land out of the water, out of the depths. He made all the plants and animals. He made mankind. Everything that he essentially made during the six days of creation, you and I can still see and observe. Adam and Eve could see everything. Uh, it's all still here. But he made the Sabbath, and I can't see it. It's invisible. But he set it aside as the seventh thing that occurred during that week and established the week, which would have seven days. And you notice he didn't set aside, sanctify, hallow, and make holy in the same way everything that he had done except the Sabbath. So he put very, very great importance on it from the very beginning. So he used manna to teach us about the Sabbath, about bread coming from heaven. Now let's go to John 6, <clears throat> because here we're going to see projected what God was doing back then, and it was tied with the Sabbath. In other words, it had spiritual importance, everything that was going on there. God had promised those people that he would take them out of slavery, out of the enforced labor that they were doing, and he'd take them to a land of promise, a beautiful land that would have everything they needed, and they would get rest from slavery. Uh, so he spoke of that rest in Genesis 1 and 2, he spoke to Israel of a time of rest that was to come. And then because they murmured and complained and wouldn't believe him, that he could take care of them, that he brought them out there to die, he says, you're not going to enter my rest. And your carcasses will drop in the wilderness and your kids can go in. So, being ungrateful and unthankful and unbelieving is a big deal with God. He wants our gratitude. <clears throat> he wants our thanks. He wants our praise. He wants us to recognize His greatness, His power, and His wonders. And when they back off from that, I mean right after the Red Sea. It didn't take long, and this point's been made many times, for them to begin to murmur and complain, because that is kind of human nature. <clears throat> we want what we want. We want what is when we want it. We don't want to wait. We are impatient. We see that 
kind of a culture all around us today, uh, to some degree at least, people 100, 200 years ago, recognize the responsibility of having to work for what you get. And we've lost that in our culture today. Now they want everything given to them, and they want it free of charge without having to work for it, essentially, overall. And that's where Israel was. They wanted it right now, and they wanted to eat, and they wanted to drink right now. Now let's go to John 6. Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, and a great multitude followed him. And they saw the miracles which he did, and that's why. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with the disciples, and the Passover was near. And Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come to him. And he said to Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? So there he is with his disciples, and he sees this great multitude headed his way. Now, he wanted something here to be taught. He wanted a lesson to be learned. Something very, very important is being introduced here. Uh, so he asked. It was about food. How can we feed these people? How are we going to buy bread? There was no grocery store around. How are we going to do this? Good question. You're out on the wilderness, maybe on the mountain, nobody around, and here comes this great multitude who want to be what? Healed. They want their problems solved. They want everything to go well. And they're willing to walk up this mountain in order to find an answer to the things that they had need of, especially of healing, because when we're sick and debilitated, it's a very difficult situation to deal with. So on his mind was feeding them. It wasn't as much healing them at this point, on this particular day, now there was, he was interested in healing, don't get me wrong, and did a lot of it. But as he saw them coming, infirm, lame, blind, deaf, he wasn't saying, I want to heal all of these people. He was saying, how are we going to feed them? So that is what he introduces here as a very, very important thing. Kind of like back in the wilderness, what are we going to eat? And God said, I'm going to feed you. <clears throat> Here, Christ takes the same situation. These people are going to be here a while. What are we going to feed them? Philip answered, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. And one of the disciples, Andrew, said, There is a lad here which has five barley loaves, and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? So he, they began to take stock. Christ said, what are we going to feed? So they started looking around to see what was available. Not very much. 
and the five loaves and two little fishes. And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Now that's a lot of people to feed. Now it says the men, I don't know whether that included women and children, but surely there were a great number of them there as well, because women and children need healed as well. So he may have had 10, 12,000 people there all together. Uh-oh. you got to have a pretty good-sized restaurant to handle that. Well, I've never seen one. I've seen that many people be fed, but they had a big kitchen and a lot of people preparing it, and prepared it well ahead of time with the piece of tabernacles there in Big Sandy. It wasn't that many, I guess. We might have had, well, maybe eight or 10,000 by the time the the field house got filled. The earlier years, it was like a thousand or two or three that had to be fed, uh, say, lunch between uh, the two services on an annual Sabbath. But that was quite, a, quite an operation. <clears throat> and Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down. And likewise, of the fishes, as much as they would, gave them all they needed or wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. What do you mean, nothing be lost? Well, it was leftovers. Uh, he put an importance here on leftovers. He has, in his plan and purpose, a time for some to be fed and a time for others to be fed later. They get, in one sense, then, the leftovers of his plan and of his purpose. The bride is the most important part of his plan and purpose. And he will make sure the bride is taken care of and fed and treated well. And then there are going to be a lot of people left over that have to be dealt with in some way. Now, the Sabbath is, we're going to see, very, very important in that plan and purpose. Remember, we went through Leviticus 23 last week. And he mentions his feast. And the weekly Sabbath was the first feast he talked about. How it was to be the seventh day, and in other places he talks about how it is to be hallowed and to be kept, and no one is to work, your son, your daughter, your slave, your employees, nobody under your jurisdiction was to work. <clears throat> Very important. It represented a time of rest, not work. So the Sabbath has to do with rest. Going into the promised land had to do with rest. Rest from their labors that they'd been going through in Mitrium. And they could do their own thing then in the promised land and rest from Satan's system and way and follow God's way. 
So it was indeed to be a rest. Now that has continued on a weekly basis ever since. And then in Leviticus 23, after he mentions the Sabbath as a foundational thing, he adds other Sabbaths to it, which have an importance of their own. And we have gone through, and that has been seen uh, by the church for many decades, much of the symbolism of what each of those holy days meant and the plan and the purpose of God. And we rehearse it every year. We only recently learned the symbolism, I think, really attached to the last day of unleavened bread. We had quite a bit of symbolism attached to all the other days. I mean, the Passover itself and Christ, uh, Pentecost with the first fruits and the coming of the Holy Spirit and and the engagement of the wife, the bride, piece uh, of trumpets about the last trump and the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead, the day of atonement, Satan being put away, and us becoming totally at one with Christ, because as long as Satan is around, you are dead, completely at one with Christ. Feast uh, of Tabernacles showing the millennium, a thousand-year reign of Christ, when the earth would have peace from the work that it had been doing for the first 6,000 years. And then, of course, the truly leftovers in the great white throne judgment, uh, symbolized by the eighth day, the last great day of the feast. So there's where the leftovers really come in, is millennium and great white throne judgment. And Christ is going to explain that as we go on through here. So some people repudiate leftovers, bodily leftovers. I just want to make fresh right now. Um, leftovers actually can be pretty good. And what God has left over from a day of salvation for the bride today is going to be wonderful for them. They're going to be thankful for the leftovers. And Christ expounded that principle when the woman came and wanted to eat. And uh, he says, no, you're a Gentile. Or you can't eat with us. Uh, because God had made that separation between the clean, Israel, who supposedly, and were supposed to be clean, and the Gentiles who had never been cleansed by him or his spirit, but he had chosen Israel. Well, here was a woman who came back to him with an answer, one that he appreciated. When he said, Lord, or she said, even the dogs get the crumbs from off the table. And he, her, saw such a wonderful attitude. She recognized that she was a Gentile, she recognized in that sense that she was like a dog, and yet even a dog could get the scratch, the leftovers, the crumbs from the table. And she was going to be so thankful and so grateful for anything she could be given. You know, we get ungrateful and unthankful for what we don't have, don't get, still want, rather than being so grateful and thankful for what we do have. And 
she willing to take the leftovers? So he didn't want any of the leftovers to be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above in the them that had eaten. So far, far, far more was left over than had originally been introduced. Now you look at that. Now we're going to talk about the, the plan of God over a period of time and how the Sabbath fits that. But Adam and Eve <laughs> had plenty to eat. And they had kids, and then more kids, and more kids. And <coughs> they kind of had what was left over. Mankind has been on leftovers for a long time now. But they're going to have their opportunity. And there's a lot of it here. Now, what form was it in? Each man had had bread, each man had had fish, or each person, whoever was there. And when you eat fish, when you get on, there's leftovers, right? You got the backbone, you got the head, you've got pieces of parts. You don't have much there left in the way of fish. When you eat bread, sitting at a table, uh, you eat the bread, and when you get on, there's crumbs on the table. Maybe if there was more there than you could possibly eat, there's pieces left, bites left over. But nothing that if you piled it up from this many people would look like much. It wouldn't amount to much. Now, you might have basketfuls, but it's going to be of little pieces. It's not going to be loaves anymore. That which was chewed, that which was rejected because, oh man, I'm too full to eat the rest of it, has bite marks on it, teeth marks on it, been fingered and held and handled, and probably dropped on the ground. And then they gathered it up from the ground. So here's something that Christ attached importance to, though really wasn't that palatable, palatable at that time to be eaten. But he didn't want it wasted. And we're going to understand more about this as we go along. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. Now, why would a prophet come into the world? It would be to project what is to be, that which is in the future. So they saw this miracle of people who did not have being fed, being given all they could possibly eat with plenty left over for whoever might need or want it thereafter. They did not be wasted. He wasn't gathering it up. <laughs> to burn. He wasn't gathering it up to um, be made into loaves that you'd want to eat. It was leftovers. 
and not very palatable looking at that. But his plan of salvation has room for a lot of people who are left over. And that has to be the spiritual and symbolic meaning of this. Here is someone who fed them, and they used that to show he was a prophet. In other words, <clears throat> with what is at hand here in the context, he was going to feed many in the future with that which was left over from where he began. He began a work with his disciples, and it spread and it grew. But he died, and that basically ended right there, and he hasn't really started a work again until almost the end of the age. So that's prophecy. That's down the, in the future. There would be others who were fed, not only in the end time, but in the millennium and the great white throne judgment. They must be fed as well. <clears throat> the salvation has to be given to some in the first resurrection, as we'll see, and to others later on as leftovers. Now, Christ goes on down to make some very important points here. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed into the mountain himself alone. He often went off to pray by himself. Um, the disciples went to the sea and went into a ship to Capernaum, and it was dark, and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of the great wind that blew, and they rode, and here they see Jesus walking. He said, It's me, don't be afraid. And they received him into the ship willingly, and immediately the ship was at the land where they went. So he came walking out on the sea, bringing them what? Bringing them him. The bread and him, in this instance, are both very important. Uh, Now, the day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save that one wherewith his disciples were entered, that Jesus went not with his disciples, but that his disciples were gone away alone, howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias near to the place where they did eat bread, after that the Eternal had given thanks. Mentions again here that he had given thanks. The bread represented something very, very important, and he gave thanks for it, and here it's reiterated that he had given thanks. We offer thanks before we eat a meal. It's very important that we do that, as we'll see. When the people there saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also uh, took shipping and came to Capernaum, <clears throat> seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side, they said, Why did you come here? Now Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
You seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. They had wanted physical healing, but they were hungry. And he said, you came back for more food. Interesting. Then he tells them, verse 27, Labor not for the food which perishes, but for that food which endures everlast unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for him has God the Father sealed. Sealed by God to do a certain job. So we're not here. We do work for food that sustains us physically, which is the only kind they had ever done and been filled. But he's going to show them something more important and that the food we need is to give life eternal. Not life on this earth because no matter how much food you raise and how much you eat, you're still going to die. So there's got to be food for the future, food forever that sustains you. So he's talking here about everlasting life. Then said they to him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. The very work of God is to believe in the one whom God sent to give what? Eternal life. That's the work. Now, it's work to get people to believe in the invisible. Here that word comes up again. That which they cannot see. Faith is based on believing what you do not see. So, to reiterate, the Sabbath is invisible, cannot be seen. God is invisible and cannot be seen, except under very special circumstances. So we're dealing with the invisible here. Eternal life is invisible. It cannot be seen. You can project in your mind and try to understand what eternal life is, but it's a mystery. <clears throat> it's a mystery of God that has not been revealed. And First Corinthians 15 tells us that the mystery will be revealed when we are changed and made immortal and eternal because it, it is as our minds are formed and with what we have the capacity to understand today is beyond our grasp. It's beyond our imagination what is coming. The invisible is very, very difficult. We'll see more about that as we go along. Uh, and, uh, let's read first thing of it. They said therefore to him, What sign show you then that we may see and believe you? 
what do you work? So what does he do then when they say, what about this work you're talking about? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now you've given us some physical bread here. Uh, our fathers had bread from heaven. Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now, God gave the manna. Christ was there doing it. Uh, but God's giving you something better than the manna of your fathers. For the bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread of life. He already mentioned eternal life. So he came to this earth to give eternal life. To work and to give us the bread that would give us energy for eternity. Then said today to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. We want this kind of bread forever. Something that will be there from God that will always be there. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. Now, we, be, we believe on him, do we not, in, in him? But we still get hungry and thirsty physically. Well, obviously, he's talking about something that is beyond physical. So we have to receive food from above, food from Jesus himself. He is the bread of life. So we're talking here not about a temporary hunger and thirst. We're talking about eternal hunger and thirst, and that we will never thirst or hunger if we receive life from him. But I said unto you that you who also have seen me and believe not, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Now, he saw those thousands of people coming. He didn't have anything to feed them physically. But he manufactured it and fed them anyway. So he's not going to turn people away who come to him and want eternal life, who want to obey, who want to serve him. And this is all tied in with the Sabbath now, remember, because that was one of the two object lessons of the, of the manna, was that everything comes from God, and the Sabbath is a part of it, a very vital part of it. And the lesson of the Sabbath was taught from the bread that was given. For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will, which has sent me, 
that of all which he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Now remember the comments I made about the leftovers. He made a very great point of gathering up that which was left over, and that he should lose nothing. Well, there are a lot of people who have lived and died from Adam and Eve up and down who have received nothing. They are dead. They don't eat bread physically, and they don't eat it spiritually, and they have no hope for it in the first resurrection. They are left over from that. And we'll see in Revelation a little later on, they get to it today, maybe next week, that they have an opportunity to have the bread of life later on. So he has a plan, and he would lose nothing. He would gather up the scraps of humanity. He would have them as leftovers, and he has a time set up for them to receive salvation that is not set up for mankind in general as yet. The holy days picture it, but it's something far off and in a resurrection apart from the first resurrection. So I would lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day. Why do we call it the last great day of the feast? Why did Jesus walk on Solomon's porch on the last great day? And there he said, anyone who will can come to me. Now, today, he made it very clear in the book of John earlier, that you can only come if the Spirit of the Father draws you. You cannot come to him on your own. You have to be drawn by the Spirit. But what he was talking about the last great day here in the book of John, he says it's open to anyone who comes, anyone who wants to. So he throws the door wide open <clears throat> to any and everyone in the last great day. That's when they'll be raised up, as Revelation 20 shows, and we'll get to that. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone that sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Not speaking necessarily here of uh, the Feast of Trumpets, but the last great day of the feast is when they'll come up. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They thought that was vain, egocentric, and untrue. And they said, Is not this the Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I came to come from heaven? Uh, I understand their logic. <clears throat> how could it be? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Murmur not among yourselves. That sounds like the Red Sea again. Murmur, murmur, murmur. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last great day. The last day. So they will then have opportunity 
if they want it. In the meantime, no man can come to me except the Father draw him. But then it will be open to everybody. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that has heard and has learned of the Father comes to me. So the prophets prophesied of a time in the future when all these dead people are going to have an opportunity. Not that any man has seen the Father, save he which is of God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he that believes in me has everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. It only sustained them until their life was up sometime during that 40 years, and they died. Manna wouldn't keep them alive. The purpose of God was that they should not have rest from trial, trouble, tribulation, and difficulty during that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And they would die there. So the manna was only good to a certain point. But he's different. This is the bread which comes down from heaven. I am the bread of life, he says, that a man may eat here thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. <clears throat> if any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. So salvation comes only through Christ. He is the only door, the only gate. He shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. His life is more important than all of ours combined, and him giving up Godship and coming down as a human being who could be killed is more important than any of, any of us who is already here who can be killed. So he said, truly, truly, I say to you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You're just going to die. There's no life there that can be sustained. It can't be forever. It can be 70, 80, 90, 100 years, and you're done. Whoso eats my flesh and drinks my blood uh, has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me, and I in him. A process of conversion in which he comes to actually live in our minds, our souls, to bring them to life, to offer eternal life. So once he, he is eternal... And if he dwells us, then he says we have eternal life, because he's living his life us. We have to respond to that and live his way. And that life will be extended and turn from just eternal to immortal. This is the bread 
which came down from heaven, not as your fathers that eat manna, and are dead, he that eats of this bread shall live forever. So the Sabbath is tied in with this, and the Sabbath was given to project into the future. Now let's go uh, to Second Peter 3. Uh, in, uh, keep in mind now that Numbers 14.34 says that a day is as a year. That's a principle in Bible prophecy and understanding that is a day can represent a year in Scripture. Now, Peter takes it beyond that in Second Peter 3. And this is very, very important to understanding the purpose of the Sabbath. Here he says, The second epistle, beloved, I now write to you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Now their minds, carnally, had not been pure. Pureness comes from the word of God and from Christ himself, who is the living bread. So it is the spirit of Christ in them that he is stirring up that they might, might remember some things. That you be, may, may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So it says, I'm here to remind you of prophecy, of things that would happen in the future, what the prophets said would happen. Uh, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. So there are going to be people who are living their own lives, living according to whatever lusts they have, and they will scoff of anything of true prophecy of what God says is going to happen. Now we have that in the world today, the last days, we're there. <clears throat> And there is great scoffing at Christianity now from our government, from uh, the queers, from all kinds of people who scoff against anyone who would believe in God. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, those prophets all died. All things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. All the way back to Adam and Eve, they said, you come forward to today, it's all the same. Those prophets were stupid. They weren't called of God. None of this stuff that they talked about has happened. Now, they weren't taking the approach of some moderns who say, it's all been fulfilled. Everything those prophets wrote were fulfilled in the Old Testament. Uh, there is no setting up of... Um, an abomination in the temple in the end time. Antiochus Epiphany said that way back when sacrificed the pig on the altar and that fulfilled that. So there's nothing in the future to come. So some take that view. It's all been fulfilled. Others say it was baloney from the beginning and that God is not aware and not doing. That's modern. He said he'd come back. Well, that hasn't happened. 
Verse 5, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water, and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. <clears throat> so the world was a different looking place after the flood. For the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So he's saying the flood of Noah came on people and destroyed them. That happened. It's a matter of history that that occurred. And he says, but the heavens or the, the earth, the, the creation that is still here, it didn't perish, changed it somewhat, but it's still here. Well, it's reserved until a different time and day of judgment. So he's saying, here comes another one. Not Noah building a boat, but the gospel being preached around the world of the good news of the kingdom of God. So it's all about the future, the kingdom of God. And a judgment will come because people will not obey and serve God. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So he upgrades it to a day equals a thousand years. Now you're going to see a little later on down here that he's talking about from the time of creation until the time of a rest of God that is pictured by the Sabbath, the seventh day. So the week, Peter is saying, is symbolic of a 7,000 years. The Sabbath is the seventh day, a time of rest. That's what it was originally. So, each week of creation represented a thousand years of history that would come, of prophecy of the future. And he's saying that it had to do with the last days, or the last day. <clears throat> he says, don't pay attention to what the scoffers say. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. Some say, well, God's not doing nothing. But is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish. He didn't want to lose any. And we read that in the book of John. That none would be lost, but they would be leftovers who would have an opportunity later on. That's in the plan of God. And that all should come to repentance. All will be given a chance by the time this age is over, which he's talking about, Millennial rest, the seventh day, the seventh thousand year period, and then the last great day. All would have an opportunity at repentance. But the day of the Lord, so he's talking about this end time that we're now entering, will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away and the big noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. 
Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness? We need holiness, godliness, to see us through what is about to happen. Now, he's not saying here that the earth is going to be burned to a char and then recreated. Isaiah 24 goes through that and shows that there's going to be great conflagration, great fire, great pressure, not from water, but from other sources. The fire of pressure and burning and heat. Uh, pressure put on mankind, but it's, and it says there, and few men left. Not everything burned, but few men left. So, the earth will still be here, and there'll be some people left. Uh, verse 12, looking for and hasting to the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire will be dissolved, the elements melt with fervent heat. He's going to put incredible pressure on, and most are going to die. But some saved out of it. Because he'll sit down to judge about a hundred billion there in Daniel. Not eight billion. Nevertheless, he says, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And we can read in Revelation 21 about the new heaven and new earth coming down, and the new heavens and the earth, new earth will still contain people that can, barely, can be clearly shown in Isaiah 65 and 66. Uh, so there will be righteousness in the new heaven and the new earth. And we can see that uh, that is pictured by the Sabbath. The seventh day, the seventh thousand years, will be a time of rest. <clears throat> we'll go to another major scripture on that uh, before we're done, and I'm looks like I'm about done. Uh, so we'll look for a new heaven and a new earth. There'll be righteousness there. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. Now he tells the church that they are to be a light to the world, shining from Zion, as we've seen in the prophecies, and that they are to be, to be holy and blameless, or in blameless, because they represent God to the world that is still out there being killed off. The two witnesses killing a lot of them through plagues or fire from their mouth if anyone tries to hurt them or harm them, and that will be done a lot until they finally do destroy them. So this thing is coming, and we need to be blameless without spot. Sin spots our garments. They must be clean. We need holy garments. Before Aaron could go in before God, he had to absolutely go through 
a cleansing of garment, a cleansing of his body, a cleansing, hopefully, of his mind, that he could actually go before God. And we are to presented as the bride of Christ to our Father in heaven, and we are to be without spot and blameless. Even today, a bride wants her wedding dress to be just right, designed exactly as she wanted it. She wants it to be absolutely clean and spotless because she is to be married. Now, hopefully, she will be a virgin. Hopefully, she will be clean that way, not having sinned sexually with others or with even her projected mate, because that is supposed to be saved until they are married. Christ is going to come in to his bride at his marriage supper, and he wants her spotless and clean, unsullied, unused, unabused, clean, perfect. Now, none of us are that. So it has to be by his body, his blood, that we're utterly cleansed from the past, made pure and whole and blameless. Now, we will be changed to immortality and all of our sin will be totally forgiven and gone, and we will be clean and beautiful and virgin to marry him, because everything of the past is washed away, done away, and forgotten. So all that will be presented before him is that which is clean and perfect and unused for his use. That's why it's so important that we go through that physically in our lives, and the world has forgotten that. Now it's sex is everywhere, married, unmarried, kinky, weird, upside down, and backward. And nothing is clean and pure anymore, it seems. <coughs> very, very little. Well, it's got to be cleansed. So he tells us, as the beloved of Christ, to be without spot and blameless, and to count that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. That's what he offered, eternal life from the bread of life, Christ himself. Even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Now, Paul writes of this in Hebrews, and we're going to examine a specific area of Hebrews where he talks about the Sabbath, the seventh day, as the rest. A day is as a thousand years, Peter says. So he's projecting what started in Genesis 1 and the creation is having to do with the Sabbath and manna and bread from the bread of life taught about the Sabbath, because everything projects toward the time when we enter into the millennium, the rest of God, from living in Satan's world and the confusion and frustration that it has produced, 
into the peace and safety and security of the kingdom of God on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a time of rest, physically for us, but in the future for the whole world to rest from what Satan has done to man and what man has done to man. And Peter is laying that out. A day is as a thousand years. So the Sabbath is as a thousand years. And we'll get into the meaning of that uh, and the symbolism that is here more next week, God willing. So that's enough for today.